0: Any, anyone who holds a, a paintbrush in the 17th century in, in the Netherlands <laughs> is considered a master, yeah. <laughs> exactly
1: It's Friday, June the 17th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Daroch, Dutch News Contributing Editor, and also known in Ukraine as Golden Darov. And <laughs> with me today, our
0: is Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering, and podcast Tassendrager. First of all, I want to uh, want to say uh, that um, um, this was a terrible news week. Uh, yes. The news got depressing and depressing and depressing. Yeah, de- everything is
1: uh, falling apart, basically. Everything is falling yeah, you apart. You can't fly anywhere. Uh, farmers are going to have to stop working. You know, yeah, ev- ev- they everything's have to be kicked out of bad, their lands. Basically. Yeah, everything yeah, is th- falling apart. Yeah, there's no beds if you're
0: an asylum seeker or if you're a student. Um, uh, there's also not n- <laughs> there's also not a desk available at the ICC if you are a, a Brazilian uh, Russian uh, <laughs> yeah. a person. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, everything is falling apart. Uh, so stay tuned for this uh, for this. Yeah, stay tuned uh, very for the first uh, first part of the apoc- uh, apocalypse podcast. Yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, but first, let let's go to the job titles. Um, yeah. Gordon, or do I have to say Golden uh, What wh- what is that about?
1: <laughs> yeah, this is uh, because um, last uh, week um, a Ukrainian website, I think were reporting on a visit uh, to uh kiev by um the foreign minister Vopka vodka hookstra um and uh they, 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 they i think what they did was they sort of translated his name uh into ukrainian or rendered it in ukrainian script um and then kind of back translated it for their english language uh twitter feed and it turned and turned it into like vodka gukstra which <laughs> which, which, kind of, which kind of proved my theory that uh dutch names are indistinguishable from star wars
0: names basically <laughs> <laughs> could also be a a a uh, james bond villain name actually yeah it could be um, that as well yeah no there was uh there was an awkward translation and uh, yeah. But, uh but, but
1: yeah i can imagine that he got to kiev and he spoke to Zelensky for the first time and said come on you're, you're, come on what's your real first name nobody's called vodka <laughs> come on this is like you know only characters in children's books have names like that
0: <laughs> It can be real <laughs> uh yeah i think he, ha- he he gets that a lot outside of friesland uh, <laughs> to be honest um yeah. I mean, we we also have that problem, right? I remember uh, uh, Muhammad Gaddafi, uh, his name was written down in like 20 versions or something. Nobody, Mm. nobody, there was no consensus on how to write his name because, you know, his name comes from a different language with a different script. Um, So, yeah, I think... uh, uh, Dutch politicians finally have the same problem. We are finally counting on the world stage, so I think that is uh, that is uh, that is a good sign.
1: It is kind of a reversal of the issues that we run into when we try to, um, uh, yeah, like uh, translate uh, like Ukrainian place names into English. And uh, in the yeah. past, we've historically we've kind of used the Russian names like Kiev and uh, and uh, Kharkov, and now we're gradually to, uh, switching to Ukrainian names like Kiev and Khark- and Kharkiv. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, uh, and everyone's, you know, finding that quite hard going. So I can well imagine that, uh, yeah, if, if if a guy with a name like Vodka hookstra turns up in your city, then uh, in your country, and you never encountered such ridiculous outlandish names <laughs> as we uh, as a quite customer in the Netherlands, uh, yeah, then it, you would struggle with it. So my sympathies with the is with the Ukrainians on this point. Even though they beat Scotland? Uh... Even though they beat Scotland at football, yeah. I'm just okay. about... In, in, I'm seeing the bigger picture here, Paul, trying to, okay. you know. Uh, in, in any case, so we've got to play them again quite soon in, in the in, in that wonderful tournament called the Refinations League. So perhaps <laughs> we, we, we've got a chance for revenge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but meanwhile, y- you've become a tussendrager or an assistente or something like this on this po- podcast. So h- how did that happen?
0: So uh, yeah, this is about uh, VVD faction leader Sophie Hermans. Um, she uh, gave a speech this weekend at the uh, VVD party conference, of which we will hear more later in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, in that speech, she talked about her her background, she wanted to uh uh um, yeah she, she she basically denied the claim that the only reason that she became a the faction leader, so the most important political uh the most important MP of the VVD party uh was that she had served uh, uh Mark Rutte as uh as as his uh political assistant mm. um yeah what is a political assistant it's something in between a spin doctor and a personal secretary and someone that you know um um uh, remains in contact with uh the media and with other mps so it is a very important job yeah um uh, and and the impression is that she was um she was given the the uh, first the, the the position of an MP because she she uh, she had served him well, and uh, later she became the faction leader. And um, um, so she denied that. She said, "No, I'm not only the back carrier of uh, of Mark Rutte, I'm just Sophie Hermans. And um, yeah, I have uh, I I I um, I got this job because mm. I'm competent. Well, if you have to emphasize that you are very competent, then, uh, then often you are not very competent." Then <laughs> to be honest. Um, And then later uh, during the week, I believe it was on Wednesday, uh, she was in a debate with uh, Geert Wilders. And Geert Wilders asked her um, how long she was planning to stay on as Rutte's back carrier. And that, uh, for some reason, hit hit a nerve uh, 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 with her. And yeah, she basically started to cry in in the middle of parliament. Well, yeah, she, she was very close to bursting out in tears, but she 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 got very emotional. That yeah. that was that was that was very clear. Um, so yeah, that reaction caused some upheav because you know is this genuine or is this uh, is this is she just acting? And mm-hmm. if you are you know the faction leader of the largest coalition partner partner, should, shouldn't you have a thicker skin than this? I mean, Geert Wilders is well known for his uh, his his verbal attacks. Uh, mm. This this wasn't nearly. Um, as uh, severe as we are used uh, from him hmm. so yeah it's it's uh, it caused a lot of uh, discussion on top of the discussion that we already had about her speech over the weekend. Yeah on the
1: other hand you know, yeah, yeah I mean there was a lot of discussion but I was kind of interested that I mean what this comes down to is Geert Wilde is a bully and we know he's a bully and he spent 15 years in parliament bullying people and particularly bullying women um, and he seems to now be targeting either women from D66. He's repeatedly calls uh, the leader of D66, um, uh, 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 uh a witch on social media. Which like he I mean, basically comes up with playground insults for people. And I think it's a bit sad that his kind of only real contribution to Dutch politics is sort of is coming up with nicknames and speaking them in Parliament, and then saying triumphantly that he's touched a nerve. I sort of we sort of had this. Discussion last year That you know, the, the, the standard of debate Needed to be raised And MPs should be more respectful To each other um, But Kit carries on with this And he gets away with it Because all we talk about Is Sophie Herman's reaction yeah. it's a shame she didn't have the wit to think on her feet and uh, say um, uh, to, to Wilder I'd rather be um, Mark Rutte's bag carrier than uh, Putin's poodle but uh, I guess <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of that on the spot either So, okay. but yeah. you know I mean th- th- this is an endemic problem I think actually in to t- 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 without wanting to get too serious about uh, about it in in, 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 in in the parliamentary chamber and um, and I think uh, again Fear Bergkamp just was completely ineffective because Wilder wasn't really asking a question here he just no. had this label for Sophie Hermanns, he realised he'd hit the spot and he said it three or four times but didn't actually have a question, he just kind of came up with a rant about, you know, his usual kind of uh, stick and spiel about uh, how, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the government should be um, uh, should, should, should uh, close the borders and stop mass migration and why wasn't Sophie Hermanns uh, uh, basically presenting the Peveve's political platform on a plate to Mark Rutte and, well, she's not his bag carrier either so... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right, good point good yeah. point. Good yeah. uh, And that brings us to the real uh, Ophef, real op-hef um, yeah. And that is uh, that Social Affairs Minister Karine van Gennep yeah. uh, Came on the fire this week after she said In an interview with Algemeen Dagblad that the Netherlands Could bring in school leavers from France or Spain To fill in employment gaps And the suggestion uh, Made it to the interview's headline uh, And that immediately caused enormous ophef On social media um, Where it was dubbed as the banlieue plan as a reference to the um, uh, yeah suburbs of uh, of Paris, with uh, which uh, yeah do not yeah. have the best reputation yeah, yeah. to it's, say it's the least. The kind
1: of deprived suburbs, where we know there's a lot of gangland violence and.
0: Uh yeah, Ex- Exactly. Um, and yeah, politicians were very united in their criticism uh, from left to right. Uh, the PVV said the plan was, uh, was stupid. Uh, VVD MP El Yassini commented on Twitter that the Netherlands is not a rehabilit- rehabilitation center for French uh, problemjongeren as we called them in uh, in Dutch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, Van Gennep was immediately called to the Tweede Kamer to give an explanation and told MPs that she only wanted to say that the government is making it easier for seasonal workers from the European Union to work in the Netherlands. And she denied her comments were a testing balloon and that the government, or that the government has a plan to bring in unemployed youths from the Parisian suburbs to the Netherlands. But she did say that we should probably look over the borders to solve the current staffing issues. Mm. She did say it as an example though, right? She, sh- she did say in the yeah. interview view, perhaps we should look into areas with high un- unemployment in the rest of Europe, for example the Banlieues. Um, um, uh, I think what happened here is Karin van Genep it's by the way uh, 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 this kind of OPF is excellent because now I can finally remember the names of the cabinet <laughs> members <laughs> right Karin van Gennepa yeah, will remember it now all the junior now. ministers yeah exactly um, no she she is a Francophile she has worked ah. in, in France for, uh, for 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 many years she even uh, received the um, Légion d'honneur at some mm-hmm. point uh, for her contribution to Dutch French um, um, relations so she is just a Francophile and I think she was yeah. in her Mind during this interview uh, in in France as she probably uh, always is, and that's why why she came up with yeah. this um, suggestion. And it was only a suggestion, but yeah, it makes it to the headlines, and that immediately. Um, yeah, gives the impression that this is a a, a plan, and that uh, she's going to work um, uh, on yeah. that. Um, but it's also a a a perfect example of people not reading further than the headline. Uh, I think.
1: Yeah, that's a classic thing on Twitter, isn't it? People just read the headline, react to the headline, rather than actually looking at the uh, what the minister has said in the interview. But uh, yeah, and, and yeah I and so much op-pef uh, kind of works in that way. But it was. Uh, and then you, see, you kind of have to think, you know, is it, is it her fault for saying it? Is it the newspaper's fault for writing a headline which kind of distorts uh, what she said? Or, I think, I I think or, is, or both is it guilty the fault here. of people on Twitter just not reading properly? Which yeah, just well, we real are, are all
0: guilty here I think yeah. but she should have been more careful with this suggestion I think yeah. because you know she is a minister so everything she says uh, people take seriously so she do, she should have been more careful but also I think that, uh, they should have been more careful even though it is in their interest to you know generate as much clicks as possible so yeah, yeah um, they also have an interest here uh, and yeah we yeah. should all I have to say if I'd
1: been a headline writer and I'd seen that line in the interview I would, pro- I would definitely have put that in the headline yeah just exactly like, you, you yeah. know that it's going to b- b- get people to read it yeah the problem is it, yeah, p- 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 people only read literally only read the headline? You know, uh, the, the point of a headline is to draw you into the story.
0: Yeah, so. but yeah, if you then have to, uh, th- if you then bump into a paywall, then uh, yeah, you're not going to read further. Yeah, because yeah. our day is a paywall <laughs> newspaper. That's true. So that's uh, <laughs> that is an issue. So the thing is, if you if, if a headline writer makes a up-half generating headline then they should just drop the paywall so that everyone can just read it yeah
1: uh. <laughs> yeah we need to abolish paywalls and go back to classified advertising and uh, yes. abolish the internet that, that, that would, <laughs> oh yeah uh, definitely <laughs> that last one yeah solve the problem this week the farming industry is told to prepare for severe cutbacks to solve the nitrogen problem travelers are told to prepare to have their holidays canceled to solve Skipples overcrowding problem Business sectors are told to prepare for a new wave of coronavirus infections, and international students are told to stay home, unless they have the room sorted out for September. Plus, a rising Dutch tennis star gets a ticket to Wimbledon, and Louis van Gaal's latest epic rant wins him a shiny new coffee machine.
0: Nature Minister Christiane van der Waal sent a plan to tackle the nitrogen crisis on Friday to the Tweede Kamer, minutes after we finished recording the previous episode, uh, I have to add. Uh, yeah, did you go to her house to complain um, directly? <laughs> this, time, this time not. No, no, no. Right, okay. the, the road in front of her house is completely blocked with other traffic. I don't know what was, uh, yeah, what yeah. was going on there. Um, The plan said drastic action is needed in large parts of the Netherlands to meet EU rules on nitrogen-based pollution. In total, levels must be brought down by 70% by 2030, and in some areas close to vulnerable habitats, a reduction of over 90% is required. But in others, this is only 12%. The government's new approach involves monitoring nitrogen emissions on a regional basis. The 12 provinces have now been given over just a year to draw up detailed plans to meet the targets. Especially farming is a heavy nitrogen polluter and responsible for 41% of nitrogen emissions. Some farmers will be able to cut pollution or move their farms, but not all of them will be able to continue, Van der Waal warned, estimating that the amount of livestock needs to be reduced by 30%. Mm. And the cabinet has allocated 24.3 billion euros to fund the plans
1: yeah and how did the farmers react were they kind of just quite um, um, reasonable and uh, understated and said yeah okay uh, we've got a problem here we need to fix it or did they um, send a convoy of tractors around her house to noise her up
0: yeah, well, the letter. <laughs> uh, and actually, on the same and the very same evening that the plans were published, uh, the, a group of angry farmers turned up at a, at her house. Uh, they blocked her street with tractors, uh, and the minister briefly. Uh, yeah, she came out. She spoke to them briefly. Um, the farmers offered her a letter on behalf of all the farmers of the Netherlands. Uh, but yeah, she she really uh, urged them to leave because uh, she said her children uh, felt very threatened and they were shaking inside. Um, also, the police showed up uh, they just looked on on everything that was happening there mm. and uh, 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 when everything was over they said the the the, the atmosphere was uh gemoedelijk or yeah, yeah. almost gezellig uh, but yeah, yeah i, I don 't think she uh, yeah. It was friday night Minis-
1: maybe they just sort of sat and had a beer together
0: yeah yeah i don 't think uh, minister van der Wallen would uh, uh, qualified as, uh, as such. Yeah. Um, the protest was condemned by politicians and also by Farmers Association LTO, who said that demonstrators should not have violated the minister's privacy. And also elsewhere in Utrecht on Friday, another group of farmers showed up at an official visit of Agriculture Minister Henk Stachauer. Uh, He had just left, but public officials that were still present were threatened by the protesters. Uh, And later that week, another visit by the farm ministers on Wednesday had to be cancelled after threats were made against him. Um, Yeah, and there's also a large protest announced uh, next Wednesday. Uh, I believe they're going to Barneveld and not to uh, the Maliveld in uh, The Hague this time. Right. Um, but yeah, okay. it's, um, or at least that's the plan. We, uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, some of them will show up in okay. the city and center what's of the significance
1: the Hague. of Barnefeld?
0: Barneveld is located in um, what is in, in an area called the uh, Gelderse Vallei, the uh, Gelder Valley. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that is one of the areas that will be um, uh, impacted the most with these plants because uh, it is a, uh, it has a high concentration of chicken farms, but also um, other very intensive um, uh, livestock uh, industry. So um, yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think they chose Barneveld for that. Um, right. Yeah, Yeah. okay. But um, yeah, this anger is not just uh, within
1: the farming community, it's also kind of spread to the coalition parties, or perhaps, is it anger or is it anxiety? But anyway, something's happening.
0: Yeah, uh, Prime Minister Marco uh, VVD party, as I said, held its conference last weekend, and members of, uh, yeah, which is the largest coalition party, not only called on the party to restore the maximum speed on motorways from 100 kilometers to 130 kilometers an hour, which was also an upheath, by <laughs> the way, um, but they also rejected the government's nitrogen Reduction plans in a motion that passed with fifty-one uh, percent against forty-nine. So yeah, this is uh, Brexit percentages here. Even smaller um, than Brexit percentages. But, it's uh, even smaller than that. Yeah, yeah, it's even tighter than that. Uh, and this vote is especially painful because you know Minister Van der Waal, too is of the VVD party, and that means uh, even more political complications for the cabinet on top of the farmers' discontent and the uh, the protests that are announced. Yeah. Um, no, I've also- to say
1: it straight away this was not going to change cabinet policy right uh
0: yeah, uh, he said that uh, uh, his party had sent a clear message and that they're going to uh, look into it. But uh, yeah, it, 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 it doesn't mean that they can now um, abandon the plans. Something needs to be done. Um, um, they're just going to look into doing it in a different way that uh, might um, lead to some more content among, uh, among the party members. But yeah, the um, party members cannot give an order to the cabinet, right? So that's yeah. not how, how our system works. But uh, the message was clear um and also uh dsa 60 in response to uh to this uh, this motion uh, which is of course also another coalition partner said after the weekend that there was no question of going back on the plans um um, the the VVD members, uh, found an ally in, uh, coalition partner CDA. Uh, it used to have a strong voters base in rural areas, remember? So they are, uh, probably still hoping to, uh, to, to, uh, uh to stick to the, to the, to the, to I, I think they're trying to, um, uh, uh, keep the the small amount of farmers they still have uh, yeah. among their voter base uh, to themselves. They they were also critical of the of the plans. Yeah. Uh, they also said that they wanted uh, uh, the. the they, they want a change in the plans, but they have slightly come back from their criticism because it turned out that much of their suggestions for improvement were already in the government's plans. So, yeah, they said uh, uh, we should also allow, for example, innovation. We should allow farmers to reduce their mm. nitrogen emissions by themselves. And, yeah, that was already in the plan. It was already still an option. And, yeah, then we come back to that problem that I just mentioned. People still only read headlines, and that was, uh, that was the case as well. They, they interpret... Uh, we need a 70% reduction of nitrogen as we need to get rid of 70% of the mm-hmm. farmers, but that's not nearly uh, the case and that's also not part of the plans. Um, yeah
1: because i mean th- these were basically just outline plans right i mean the, the, yeah. the minister came up with a, a set of targets and kind of regionalized targets but basically the, the actual detail of it is left to the provinces so exactly. things like uh, as you say the things you just mentioned like a uh, question of innovation or whether farmers get bought out uh, ultimately none of that's being decided so a lot of the thing a lot of the time they said we need to go back on these plans actually kind of Means but they were discussing things that, are, that will need to be incorporated into the more detailed plans, and the provinces have a year to come up with those things. So it's all a bit of kind of, I think, uh, sort of parties, not just the CDR and also the Christian Uni, who have big rural bases, kind of felt like they had to send a message to their voters or their potential voters, and particularly the voters that they're losing to parties like the Bebebe, the farmer citizen movement, that they were still listening to them.
0: yeah and and uh, yeah many of the the yeah if you just listen carefully to 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 the criticism um what they're saying then you know if you just read the the plan the plans only the summary you only have to read the summary and then you know that very often what they want is allowed in within these outlines uh so yeah it's um i think people should just uh read what the plans are <laughs> and then yeah. come with criticism and not come with criticism before they actually read it yeah um,
1: but this is kind of it, it seems as if there are cracks appearing between the coalition parties like d is being very sort of, uh, firm in saying we have we have to do something here whereas the Day and the CDR are trying to still or, and the Christian Union actually are still kind of Trying to kind of kick the can down the road, really, or what they've been doing for the last three years, and uh, say, "Oh, we need to kind of uh, uh, give farmers a bit more perspective, and uh, you know, um, and, and maybe kind of find a bit more space." Uh, but also, there seems to be cracks within the parties, and particularly within the Fei-Fei Day, which I think is remarkable because they've had such strong discipline for the last twelve years since uh, since they came to power as the as the largest party.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we we, we there are cracks uh, emerging uh, uh, within the coalition and internally in some parties as well, and also the CDR. Actually, I mean they 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 are they 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 are reduced uh, to to a shadow of, of, of what they once were in terms of uh, of of seeds, because you know basically all the all the farmers have left there. Mm. Um, uh, but still, there is a lot of discontent within the CDI as well. Uh, D66 is happy because, you know, they they want to do something uh, against the enormous number of, of livestock that we have in the Netherlands. And I think they have a point here. Why, why do we need to be a country that is the largest uh, uh, meat exporting country in Europe? Uh, do we really need to be the second largest food exporter of the world? Yeah. I mean, we, if you we can... We more food in Germany, which is amazing we 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 export more food than any country in the world except the United States. Yeah. Uh if you just consider how small we are, how many people there are living here, we are also one of the uh, a country with the uh highest uh, population density uh in in Europe if you don't take countries like Monaco into account. Um do we really need I mean uh, it, it uh, and also, we're going to talk about Schiphol. We have the the, the fourth largest airport uh, 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 of Europe, um, yeah. uh, right? Right in the in the in the in the um, uh, in the middle of the country. We also have the largest port of of the Western world. I mean, aren't, haven't we reached our capacity as a country? I think we 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 have uh, on many fronts, uh, and this is just uh, the the agricultural. Problem is just one of them. Yeah, it's um, we have a lot, a lot of problems. uh, (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and
1: I guess one of the problems is that uh, it's been presented as a, as kind of a policy choice that can be changed. But actually, what's underpinning this is that there is a judgment by a court that says quite clearly you have to. Reduce the emissions because what you're doing now is breaching European law, and has all kinds of consequences for. And it's actually started as a, initially. There's a problem with the construction industry because they couldn't get environmental permits for things like road building projects or large housing projects, which you know, which means we can't do these things, which are essential, especially in, like you say, a very densely packed country. Um, but also now uh, there are, I think, uh, I heard this week there are like 300 individual. Court cases against farms who are close to these nature, these these vulnerable conservation zones, which need to be protected. Um, so, so some farmers are actually facing individual court action um, because they're, they're they're exceeding nitrogen limits. And ultimately, if the, the the choice is not between resisting a government policy or going along with it, it's either either you work to, to, to reduce the nitrogen emissions down to accept down, down to acceptable legal levels, or you get shot down by court order. So. Yeah. And nobody's telling them this, which I think is actually pretty uh, alarming.
0: Yes, uh, this is uh, definitely not the end of the story, and uh, to be continued. Yeah.
1: Speaking of things, just won't go away. Coronavirus is back. Had you missed it?
0: No, not at all, no. No. We'd
1: always forgotten about (laughs) it, actually, almost. But... um, Coronavirus hadn't forgotten about us, as Hugo de Jong would probably say, um, because infections are rising again. Three months after the restrictions uh, were lifted, uh, the number of positive tests rose by 64% in the last seven days. And of course, positive tests these days don't give you a complete picture because um, only older people and people who've got uh, vulnerable health conditions uh, go for tests if they get a positive self-test. Uh, the public health agency, the OFM, said all the signs were that a summer wave of infections was imminent or perhaps had already started. And other numbers also indicate that infections are on the rise. So samples from the sewage network tripled in 12 days to June 6, although the numbers have started to go down a little bit in the last couple of days. And the number of coronavirus patients in hospital is at its highest level for three weeks. Now, there are currently 447 patients who've tested positive, including 28 in intensive care. So in the grand scheme of things, these are low numbers. But if you look at kind of what we've had in the past, a doubling rate of every two weeks, that means in four weeks' time, if we continue this kind of trend, we might have like, sort of 1,500 patients in hospital, which uh, would be not a great uh, development. The RFEM says it likely causes two new strains of the Omicron variant, but there's no sign so far that they cause a more severe form of the illness.
0: Okay, but, you know, cases are rising, um, but I'm sure the government has a long-term strategy that uh, they can implement at any point uh, in order to reduce the uh, the number of positive infections, right?
1: Yeah, they do. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> they sort of do. Actually, no, they don't at all. Um, it's uh, a very kind of broad one. The, the, the basic message from Health Minister Ernst Kaupers this week, he unvi- he unveiled the long-term strategy for tackling coronavirus which we've all been eagerly anticipating uh, for several months um, and his basic message was um, it's kind of down to you guys to, to sort it all out yourselves um, yeah. And particularly he wants what he called a sector-based approach, which uh, means like uh, businesses, like the catering industry, but also things like education, schools, um, uh, the healthcare, all to kind of come up with their own plans individually uh, to, to agree kind of their own rules. And also come up with like what he called matrechenen uh, ladders, so ladders of measures. So Mm. I I guess you kind of gradually climb the ladder as um, infections get higher until you discover that your own sector plan is completely inadequate and the government has to step in and impose... Uh, uh, rules again, all over again, which they can't do, of course, because they've abolished the law, the emergency yeah. law that allowed them to, uh, to, to to bring in things like you know social distancing and um, and mask mandates. So, what the government can actually do is is quite limited. And what Carper said was basically all they can. They are going to sort of make plans to increase um, mass testing uh, over a period of six weeks and also uh, there will be preparations to give a fourth booster shot to people if, if we get more infections. But It's all kind of, you know, very vague. There's no actual uh, timetable or, um, uh, uh, or, uh, or, or or concrete plans to carry out any of this. It's all kind of let's wait and see what happens, uh, even though the RIVM has already said that um, uh, all the signs are that uh, infections are on the rise again.
0: Yeah, the the inactivity is uh, quite baffling, right? Especially because Baron yeah. Skypes was what was he? He was the he the was head of, of the,
1: the um, national patient the national patient distribution network. Was basically sort of organized a whole you know, shifting around of patients between int- intensive care units, so that no individual hospital got uh, got a logjam.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we we, we finally thought uh, Hugo de Jonge is gone. We now have someone coming from healthcare, from someone who has you know worked in the outbreak management team, um, um, someone that you know has um, is, is decisive. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's uh, that's not uh, how we can describe him right now. I think no,
1: and um, he's also in, uh, set up a social impact team. So oh, yeah. as well as an outbreak management team that tells you um, how the disease is progressing, there's also there's now this social impact team that will tell you what the, like, the effects of um, any new measures are going to be. So basically these two bodies are going to sit and argue with each other as soon as yeah. there's an increase in, um, uh, in infections, which is really what you want if you're, if you're coronavirus, I guess, but uh, not much use to people who are actually at risk of getting sick from it.
0: More bouldering. Um, yeah. So uh, how about the vaccinations? You just briefly mentioned it, but uh, is there some something more?
1: Yeah, well, campus has said there are enough vaccines to give everybody a second booster dose at some point. But again, as I said, he hasn't actually uh, given any indication that he's planning to, uh, to have another round of vaccines. At the moment, the boosters are only available if you're over 60 or you have a medical condition that compromises your immune system. Uh, but according or to if you it,
0: were initially vaccinated with uh, Janssen and Janssen.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. In that case, uh, you can also have a well. Th- then you get like a is that a first or a second booster? It's a third. It's jab. called a second booster. So, a second yeah. booster, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But it means you have it because you need to have a third injection. Uh, for yeah. some countries that say yeah. you need three need to have had three jabs yeah um yeah um but uh, i mean according to a survey by from Nederland anyway the the, the kind of uh, support for um uh, vaccination is going down only 47 percent of people are willing to get another uh, vaccine shot uh, and roughly the same number said they definitely wouldn't and in any case less than two-thirds of people have had their uh, their first booster jab Uh, Never mind the second one. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. because there's been so much kind of anti vaccine rhetoric and the government hasn't, has kind of abandoned the. uh, I think a year ago, uh, Huko de Jong, at least for all his faults, was saying very firmly, you know, vaccination is our way out of this crisis, whereas now Kaupers just seems to be saying nothing about it, uh, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, all the kind of medical evidence is that uh, keeping up to date with your vaccines is is the best way of, is one of the best, most effective ways of uh, preventing mass infection or mass sickness anyway.
0: Amsterdam Schiphol Airport announced on Thursday it will cancel hundreds of flights a day during the summer period because of a shortage of security staff and baggage handlers. In July, the airport will impose a daily cap of 67,500 passengers and 72,500 in August, meaning that it has to refuse around 13,500 people on a daily basis. Schiphol is forced to cancel flights because no airlines were prepared to voluntarily cancel some of their services on a significant scale. Schiphol will spread the cancellations proportionally over the airlines, and the measure means hundreds of thousands of travelers will have to make new holiday plans or book flights from other airports. Schiphol has been suffering from staff shortages since uh, the May school holidays with enormous queues, delays and long waiting times at the Dutch national airport as a result. Travel agencies have announced they will sue the airport over the decision and demand compensation. And the Dutch Association for Travel Agencies, ANVR, fears that many travel organizations could go bankrupt as a result of Schiphol's problems and decision to scrap hundreds of flights. Yeah, and they have said as
1: well that uh, they're going to prioritize or mainly focus on people who are actually taking off from Schiphol, right? Because their argument is that most of the... Uh, the real problems in the queuing is uh, is that the security checks uh, for people who are going through to departures. Uh, so, and they also want to keep transit passengers moving as much as possible because obviously if, you, if a transit masen- passenger misses their connection and they're stranded in Amsterdam, then that creates a whole set of problems whereas people who, at least if you cancel the flights of people Um, who are leaving from Amsterdam, then you can tell them in good time. They don't turn up at the airport in the first place and that uh, that, uh, at least means you don't have a build-up of passengers.
0: I'm sure they have thought everything uh, through yes, very cause, well because
1: they've been thinking things through so well in the last uh, couple of weeks which is how we got into this mess yeah.
0: exactly yeah yeah. yeah. so um, yeah it's, uh, it's very disappointing and I think a lot of people will, uh, will have some problems uh, going to the holiday destinations um, I have to say Schiphol is not the only airport that uh, suffers from these problems. Uh, Heathrow in London, for example, uh, has similar problems. Uh, Zaventem in Brussels, too. Um, uh, some, some airports in Germany. So it is a, a Europe-wide problem. Um, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's very annoying for a lot of people. But at least people in Zwanenburg uh, will be able to sleep uh, better now.
1: Yeah, but uh, that's true, because has also been told it has to um, cut 10% of flights a year um, from now on, doesn't it, as well, Because uh, in order to comply with uh, the noise pollution regulations. That's uh, another Schiphol story they brought this week. So after years and years of um, uh, fairly unchecked growth by the airport, uh, they're now being told by the government they have to uh, scale back their activities
0: because yeah currently there are 500,000 flight movements a day uh, at Schiphol Mm. uh, which which means that uh, a plane lands or takes off every 30 seconds um, uh, to put that into perspective and uh, this this number of 500,000 needs to be reduced to 450,000 or Perhaps 440,000. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's a reduction of 10%. Yeah, noise pollution is is, is the main problem here. Uh, if you live nearby Schiphol, I mean, they they do everything they can, right? Uh, they they have they work with uh, different. Um, uh, configurations of of uh, of uh, uh, landing strips uh, throughout the day uh, to spread the 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 noise uh, um uh uh pollution uh yeah as much as possible but yeah if you live nearby the airport and i even i live in delft and sometimes there's a, f- mm. a plane going over Delft that's going to land in, in Schiphol. And, yeah, you, you, you it, it is very loud. And I can only imagine how terrible it must be if you live, for example, in Hoofddorp or Amsterdam South, which is also yeah. uh, nearby the I mean, I think airport, living in Hofdorp
1: is just terrible generally. But um, uh, it would be slightly it, it less is, terrible yeah, if there weren't yeah. planes uh, flying over your head every five minutes. Yeah. You yeah. could also argue,
0: Schiphol was there probably longer than you lived there, so you could have known <laughs> that you're going to have experienced some 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 noise from uh, from from aircraft that are flying over your house. But still, it is it is uh, it, it is of course very unpleasant um, to live there. I think.
1: Yeah, sure, but, but it is kind of infuriating for um, uh, people who haven't been on holiday for two years, but also people who've. Um, you know, who, who travel or fly frequently for personal uh, or business reasons, or because you have family living abroad. You know, th- do you think that after two years of pandemic, when you couldn't go anywhere, that finally everything gets back to? You know, to to normal and you can go go about your business, and then suddenly you find your flights are getting cancelled yet again. I mean, I, yeah. I had to cancel a flight, I had to you know, rebook a flight, I think seven times uh, oh, in the course really? of the pandemic, yeah, to go because I was uh, to, to go and visit my partner who lives in the UK, and I thought you know, so breathe a sigh of relief, and I finally got on board the plane and thought, right, the pandemic's over, no more restrictions, finally. Yeah, we, we can travel again, and now lo and behold, uh, I now have a flight booked in July, and it looks uh, very much as if uh, that might uh, that might fall out as well. Um, and yeah, it's just, uh, I, can, I, I can feel people's uh, pain and anger. It's, again, people always say, that, oh, it's just holiday traffic that gets affected when flights are cancelled, but it's not true, people try to fly for all kinds of reasons, and they're the ones who bear the brunt of uh, these decisions. But we will continue to bring you updates on uh, the podcast and the Dutch News website of exactly what's going to happen. Because I think over the course of the next week, the airlines will say which flights or will announce which flights they actually are going to have to cancel as a result of this uh, cap on passenger numbers. The great thing about the Dutch News Podcast is you can listen to it anywhere, while waiting in the queues at Schiphol if your flight hasn't been cancelled, while waiting in the queue for the hotline to tell you if your flight's been cancelled, or on the plane back to Brazil after your elaborate cover story has been blown. <laughs> but, however you're joining us, we depend on your donations to keep bringing you the latest news, op and occasional travel advice. So this is a moment when we want to give a big thank you to all the patrons who keep us going and say that uh, to other regular listeners, if you want to join our band of loyal supporters for as little as uh, one euro or a dollar uh, or a pound. Or a ruble. Or a ruble, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think either the ruble or the pound are probably the uh, the, 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 the ones that, uh, to go in for at the moment. Earn yourself a shout-out on the next podcast. Uh, go to www.patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Dutch NL. International students have been warned not to come to the Netherlands in September before they've sorted out a place to live. The Volkskrant reported that universities in several cities, including Maastricht, Groningen, Eindhoven and Delft, are facing a housing shortage next year. Well, in fact, they've been in a housing shortage for some years already. Yeah. And international students who make up 14% of the student body are often left stranded. Student housing monitor Kenses said last year the Netherlands had a shortfall of 26,500 student rooms, including more than
0: 5,000 in Amsterdam alone. So uh, do we have some experiences from, from students? What, what, what are they saying?
1: Yeah, some of the Dutch media have been uh, speaking to students about this. Uh, one American student in Utrecht uh, told the false content it was like the Hunger Games uh, basically <laughs> she, she where she um, she was trying to find a room but she found that there were 20 other people um, uh, competing for the same room uh, every time. And of course it doesn't help that um, a lot of adverts on Facebook say explicitly no internationals because Dutch students don't like living with foreign students. Some Dutch students don't like living with foreign students uh, because of the language barrier or just for whatever reason. But anyway, they, they often post on Facebook that They don't want uh, international students uh, as housemates. Another student from Germany said she'd been told to leave her room from July the 1st and was now looking ahead to spending the next month on a friend's sofa. And after that, she said, I don't want to think about what I'm going to do. <laughs> and there'd be another case of students staying in hostels or tents or even only up on the streets in the first weeks of the university year. I think uh, one student um, was uh, quoted and basically said, I'm going to get to my course in Utrecht one way or another, even if it means kind of sleeping on the um, on the sofa of a, of a nice boy that I've met on the beach in Corfu. Although she won't be going <laughs> To go through the summer because Schiphol's cancelled their flight. So. Exactly, there goes her plans, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So is the government doing anything, and this is probably going to be a rhetorical question, but is the government <laughs> actually doing anything about this? Well, you may have detected a theme
1: uh, in the news this week um, and uh, which will lead you to the conclusion that uh, yeah, the government is uh, saying it's going to do something about it, but actual concrete plans uh, haven't really emerged. Uh, Education Minister Robert Degraff said uh, told Parliament this week he is researching ways to manage the flow of of international students there is legislation waiting to be passed by the senate but it's all kind of being put on hold now uh, while they deal with the other catastrophes that uh, have been put on hold over the last couple of years the dutch universities association has been campaigning since 2018 uh, for rules to be implemented that allow them to limit or at least control the number of international students uh, for example by setting a ceiling on the number of courses that are taught in english and they said uh, i think Partly reasonably, you know, it's logical for some courses to be taught in English because, you know, like things of a technical nature where all the work is done in English. But why would you teach a history course in English, for example? Hmm. Um, and they also want to um, limit numbers of non-EU students. Although three quarters of foreign nationals are from the EU, and you cannot actually uh, turn away uh, students from the EU on the basis of their nationality. So that's yeah. only going to make a small difference to the uh, to the general problem. Uh, and while attracting international talent is essential, the increase in foreign students is affecting the quality of teaching and putting too much pressure on staff, uh, Chairman Peter Dazenburg said earlier this year.
0: Mostly because um, um, Dutch teachers um, yeah, are not fluent in English and yeah, yeah that uh, affects the quality of their teachings yeah uh, if they all of a sudden is, are forced to uh, yeah switch to the English language but yeah it's a real problem but it's been a problem ever since I've been studying I mean um, yeah, yeah. In, uh, in Delft was usually one of the uh, university cities with the least housing problems, but I remember friends that went to Utrecht, for example, or Amsterdam, that uh, yeah were looking for a place to stay for over a year, and then uh, if they found something, then it was expensive as hell. So it's been a problem for many years now, and um, also in Delft near the train station, you have something called the student hotel, mm-hmm. uh, which sounds like a ripoff, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, if they had built this building, but for uh, you know these in student housings, and not just someone who is uh, renting out these rooms uh, on a daily basis. I mean, that would have already helped, um, I think. But yeah, the, it's uh, it's a real problem, and uh, yeah, especially if you hear that uh, some students. Spent a night on the streets, then yeah, that's uh, that's even. Um, yeah, you uh,
1: really do. I mean, I, I spoke to um, a, a politician in Groningen for, for the city council elections, who was from the uh, the party called and Stat, which is you know t- t- basically a, st- a students' interest party on on the council. I think they have three seats now, and he said he said exactly that. He said he said that international students had, um, had had approached him or, pro- or he spoken to them, and they, they literally ended up in September um, sleeping on the streets or sleeping in hospital. Because there was just no space for them, and again, it's a classic thing where Dutch universities have wanted to internationalise and made a big thing of the fact that they're very attractive places for international students to uh, to, to go and study, but um, you know they haven't actually made enough provision to accommodate them and so you end up with uh, all kinds of very exploitative situations where landlords can kind of overcharge yeah. students because they're so desperate to have a room and you don't want to think about i mean i, I mentioned kind of jokingly that story about uh, somebody saying they're just going to find a, you know, find a nice boy who has got a spare sofa but you know that there are that, 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 that does kind of have quite ominous uh, consequences that people are you know are so vulnerable um and need somewhere to to sleep
0: yeah and what kind of people take advantage of exactly, that exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Dutch security service AIVD has prevented an infiltration of the International Criminal Court by a Russian spy. The security service uncovered a Russian national who was posing as a Brazilian to get to work at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. The man, named Sergei Vladimirovich Cherkasov, had already been accepted as an intern when he was arrested at Schiphol Airport in May. This type of intelligence officer is called an illegal, and it is rare a spy of such uh, caliber is arrested, the IVD says. Illegals are hard to identify because they have received extensive training to assimilate in society and often use stolen foreign identities as an alias. By posing as a foreigner, illegals can access information that is inaccessible to a Russian person. And uh, if Cherkasov had succeeded in working for the ICC, he would have had access to a lot of information and people of high interest to the uh, GRU. And that's, of course, the uh, successor of the KGB. He may uh, also have been able to influence ICC cases. Uh, The court uh, is currently investigating, for example, possible war crimes by Russian soldiers in Ukraine. So yeah, it's definitely...
1: Yeah, you want to keep Russian spies out of that exactly. Right? Out of that whole system. Um, yeah.
0: And uh, yeah, this is not the first time uh, the Netherlands has uh, kicked out a Russian spy. It has expelled more than twenty people uh, or Russians suspected of spying in recent years.
1: Yeah, including, of course, famously the was it four Russian spies or three who were uh, trying to hack um, the um, uh, the organization for the prevention of chemical weapons from the next door Har- Marriott hotel. Yeah. Using a laptop parked yeah. in the in the boot of a car. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So there's been a lot of kind of fun Russian spy uh, stories in the Netherlands lately. Um,
0: yeah, maybe we'll see a Netflix uh, series uh, uh, <laughs> a, 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 about the Russian spy community in The Hague uh, in the coming years, I think, because you know we see so many Russian activities here in the Netherlands all of a sudden, and that has, of course, to do with all the international organizations that are based in The Hague. Um, um, and also, yeah, the, the Netherlands has, of course, a... Yeah, not so good relation with Russia since 2014, Mm -hmm. uh, since uh, the downing of flight MH17, which is also a court case that is um, uh, going on in, in The Hague. I always confuse these uh, these tribunals but is that also at the ICC or is it not there?
1: No that's, no, no, that's a bit actually being um, heard in the Dutch courts in fact I think it's the high security court in Schiphol Oh that's
0: right yeah it's not an international court uh, and also the IVD Day or uh, one of the other security services had um, hacked into uh, a trolling farm a Russian trolling farm right mm. that uh, that had interfered yep. with for example the American elections uh, presidential elections of 2016 yeah. I believe um, and the Ivy Day, it's 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 kind of strange to be so open about this, right? It's it's almost yeah. as if please be careful, just not uh, reveal your your modus operandi. Uh, that's uh, that's important for for security services. But okay, uh, but they they also included the background story of, of this uh, this Russian yeah. agent, right? Uh, it it yeah. contains a lot of uh, yeah fabricated details, but it shows how extensive these illegals uh, work on their background story. Um, I have to say there at some points it is it sounds pretty amateurish. for example he claimed to have been born and raised in brazil but he had somehow forgotten the portuguese language yeah but he'd gone back to
1: brazil and taken portuguese language classes yeah, so, that that sounds language,
0: yeah, here. that sounds <laughs> sounds a little bit uh, unrealistic. Uh, but no. they also he, uh, this this uh, person also had an online identity. It it had a Twitter account where it posted uh, critical tweets about Russia, for example. So yeah, they they uh, they have been working on his identity uh, extensively.
1: Yeah, and kind of cultivating it as well through experience. And in fact, I think he'd gone to study at a Brazilian university and uh, the the professor who actually wrote his reference to the International Criminal Court posted on Twitter this week and said that uh, he'd been his student for four or five years and he'd been very very convincing and interestingly he'd hardly ever mentioned Russia, even though because he was studying international law, the course did uh, mention Russia and Russia's activities. But he would hardly ever talked about it at all. He'd, so he'd come across as um, somebody who wasn't really interested in that aspect at all. And he'd end up written in, writing him quite a strong reference, uh, recommending him as a, as a very good uh, candidate uh, for the internship. When you read the backstory document, a lot of it, it does seem quite kind of uh, amateurish in some ways. But I think the actual process of winning over people's trust and convincing them that you are, you know, um, a genuine person uh, is quite sophisticated.
0: Yeah. And, and yeah, to, to see at what lengths the GRU is going to, uh, to make these illegals. Realistic. I mean, studying at Trinity College in Dublin and also graduating from John Hopkins University in Baltimore, I mean, that's not something. Um, Yeah,
1: that's That's the thing. It's not just he made up the story. He actually did these things. So over a period of four or five years, he actually developed this personal history that you could check and verify and you know because i'm sure the, the first thing intelligence services did when they got wind of the fact or the criminal court would have done to check his background they would have actually gone to people they would have checked out his personal history and said did you actually study these places and are there people who can vouch for you and all these things existed because they'd been very carefully created this persona over a period of several years
0: yeah, and he had also lived in Arlington, uh, Virginia, which is where the the Pentagon is is located yes. near Washington DC. Yes. So I, I wonder what he uh, <laughs> what he has been doing. Uh, 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 I mean, I do think there is a Netflix series in. There. Yeah. What, was, what was your favorite detail?
1: I like the way, the fact that he he came up with a cover story for why he didn't like fish. Yeah. <laughs> because he said, if you follow um, our good friend and former colleague uh, Molly, Molly Quell on Twitter, then she's done a very good thread picking out some of these highlights and I would thoroughly recommend that you read it. But uh, yeah, he came up with a story that he, he couldn't stand the stench of fish, um, even though he said uh, most Brazilians uh, adore everything that comes from the sea.
0: Yeah, he was born into poverty. His mother had to, uh, you know, work very hard to earn a living and she was a singer. So they went to all the bars and all the restaurants in, in Rio de Janeiro to sing and to earn some money, um, but but they were located near the harbor, and that's why uh, he hates that's the right. smell of fish because it reminds <laughs> him of his terrible um, uh, youth, uh, his
1: terrible non-existent uh, poor upbringing. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. So that w- that was his uh, his explanation.
1: Well, it. All kind of got the feel of like being like a real life Turing test, really, isn't it? You have got to sort of spot the spot the deception. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Finally, to sports news, and we start with tennis. Because uh, Tim van Reethoven has managed to bag himself a wild card for Wimbledon. As Tim himself said, almost no one had heard of him until uh, a week ago. But I did. Uh, then he, yeah, you had. That doesn't surprise me actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, fact, do you know him personally?
0: Um, well, I, I don't know him personally, but uh, yeah, I, I've seen him. So yeah, I, I, I think I met him once or twice or something. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because he's from your hometown of uh, Rosendal. Exactly. Yeah and uh, yeah but uh, the last weekend uh, he um, he had a sensational victory in the Rosmal and Grass Court tournament he went all the way to the final and then defeated the world number one Russia's Daniel Medvedev in straight sets that uh, pushed him 99 places up the world rankings <laughs> to 106 and the 25 year old then got a phone call on Tuesday to say that after intensive lobbying by his management uh, he had been given one of the eight cherished wildcard places at the Grand Slam tournament in London so he got kind of the golden ticket to wimbledon and he said even if i lose in the first round i can say that i've stood on the court at wimbledon the holy grass the holy grass yeah oh. uh, well his, his, his opponent in the final Medvedev, will not be at wimbledon this year because uh, his countrymen are too busy committing war crimes in ukraine so the <laughs> lawn tennis association have decided that they're not welcome but because of that the atp tennis's governing body has decided not to award ranking points for the grand slam tournament so Booze for the uh, for the ATP there for, um, for for caving into Putin.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. And there was also another Dutch uh, person going to the uh, Wimbledon uh, tournament, right?
1: Yeah, Botic van der Zandschulp is also in good form. He's uh, he's playing in uh, the classic Wimbledon warm-up tournament at Queen's Club in London, and he's got to the quarterfinals where he's taking on Spain's Alejandro Davidovich uh, Fokina. And uh, good luck to whoever's doing the commentary yeah. on that match between those two players. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I stole that joke from Richard Osman, by the way, I was <laughs> <gonna say> that.
0: <laughs> well, credits where credits are due. So, uh, uh, van der Zandschulp hasn't qualified yet for the, for the Wimbledon. The tournament, but he's uh, he's on his way too, right? Yeah.
1: Well, he's in good form certainly. So uh, yeah, uh, no, that, I think that is one of the qualifying tournaments. I can't remember how many places there are from Queens, but getting to the quarterfinals is uh, is pretty good.
0: So uh, yeah, we should uh, we should get some uh, some strawberries and whipped cream. Uh, uh, we should stockpile on that because uh, yeah, we will yeah. eat l- plenty of that uh, in the coming weeks. I think.
1: If the uh, farmers aren't uh, too busy uh, <laughs> driving their tractors to the minister's house.
0: But that's not the only news in Dutch tennis this week, right? No, because in
1: more serious news, uh, a senior tennis coach has been arrested and questioned on suspicion of sexually assaulting two professional players. Uh, The coach hasn't been named, but NOS said he was a former player who'd been ranked in the top 100 during his career. Both his alleged victims are men. Their lawyer, Annemiek von Spagna, said they'd not taken the decision to go to the police, likely because it's uh, the the high-profile the case and the likelihood of publicity, but they wanted to prevent other young tennis players from becoming victims of abuse. And his club also said they'd been working with um, young players and uh, promising potential p- professionals or amateurs quite intensively until a month ago when the police investigation started.
0: Yeah, so uh, yeah, another episode in this long string of, of sexual abuse stories that we've seen in sports unfortunately
1: yeah yeah this is a thing I think is becoming coming to light more and more in sport we've seen in gymnastics in yeah. the last year and there's hockey there a lot of abuse and, cases yeah, yeah, hockey yeah. yeah and there's been talk as well I mean not so much in the Netherlands but elsewhere ice dancing now they're talking I think of even of having a, a minimum age for, for yeah. ice dancing at the Olympics because there is so much of a potential for abuse for you know promising young competitors
0: yeah But we need to talk about my favorite uh, sport event, (laughs) the Nations League. What's that all about? Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, The UEFA Nations League is still grinding away. Um, No one really knows why or what it's about. (laughs) But the Dutch national team is doing quite well. So uh, I guess we should be glad of that. They won three of their four matches in League A, Group 4, so far. Uh, could have been 4 out of 4 if Memphis Depay hadn't missed a last minute penalty against Poland on Saturday after the Dutch come back from 2-0 down but uh, he went from villain to hero last Tuesday in the match against Wales where he poked in the last gasp a winner after Wales had equalised in injury time which is actually a carbon copy of what happened in the away game in Wales where Valt Vechos scored in the last minute uh, a week earlier so Wales have lost twice in injury time to the Dutch in the last week which inserts them right because they beat Ukraine so yeah
0: I have no sympathy. No, that's right. They deserve this uh, this loss. And Louis van Gaal uh, caused some ophef uh, after the game against Poland, didn't he?
1: He did, yes. Uh, well, when results don't go their way, coaches like a good distraction. And uh, Van Gaal uh, decided to sound off about the state of De Kaup Stadium, <laughs> uh, which is pretty low-hanging fruit, really. It's, the stadium <laughs> uh, was built in 1937, and it is kind of falling to bits. Feyenoord wanted to move, but they didn't have the money to build a new stadium next to the mouse, so they're stuck with De Kaup. Basically, van Gaal said, uh, although the stadium had the best pitch in the Netherlands, the facilities left a lot to be desired. Uh, or to use the exact words of Louis, he said it was <laughs> which I think you can translate as a load of old crap. Um, his, basically, his specific complaint was that he had to give his half time team talk in the gym and uh, half the players were standing behind him. And also all there was um, by way of um, uh, facilities was uh, a table and a pot of coffee so he said basically it was up, if it was up to me we wouldn't come here anymore but um, I'm just a national team coach so I don't have any say in the matter <laughs> and sure enough the Canfé Bay who do decide these things said uh, it was a no-go uh, they need to have other stadiums other than the Amsterdam Arena playing. Uh, they need to have other stadiums that are fit for tournament football although De Cap isn't really so there's no question of abandoning Rotterdam plus the fact that the team actually has a pretty good record in De they haven't lost there in the last 30 matches including a 19 match winning streak that ended with that draw against Poland on Saturday. Hmm. But the Ophef did have a happy ending, uh, because when van Gaal turned up for Tuesday night's game against Wales, he found a brand new espresso machine (laughs) and a note (laughs) saying, dear Mr. van Gaal, we hope this coffee is more to your taste.
0: Very good, very good. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it is is a very old stadium. It's too old and yeah, it should have been replaced many years ago. But I mean, yeah, North fans are very sensitive about this and uh, when uh, a couple of years ago it was announced that uh, there were serious plans to to build a new stadium uh yeah it caused a lot of uh, backlash and a lot of uh, protest and uh, and, re- and and uh, uh, resistance yeah I and
1: mean, one of the directors had uh, basically quit because he was getting so many threats uh, at home he getting visits at home from the fans so
0: exactly yeah 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 so um yeah yeah
1: i wonder how many final fans are also farmers <laughs> <'cause>, uh, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, not it too <laughs> seems to be their kind of stock in trade.
0: Yeah, yeah. We should be worried about our fountains then, I think.
1: That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at DutchNews.nl. We will encode links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes, and you can get in touch with us by email to podcast at if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And if you can afford anything once you've had your flight refunded and uh, you've paid your energy bills, uh, please do think about backing us on Patreon at patreon.com slash news NL. You'll earn yourself a shout-out on the podcast, our eternal gratitude, and um, well, not much else, really. <laughs> uh, but we will be very thankful. My thanks to Paul Peters, I'm Gordon Derrick, and we will be back next week.